Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. We are glad to be shooting audio into your eardrums once again. We've been off for the summer. My name is Jacob. His name is Michael, and we are back on the pod. Michael, what's going on, man? Oh, it feels good to be back. September took a few months off. Yep, yep. We, uh, uh, in an unannounced fashion, just kind of dropped off the face of the podcast world. That's and, right. Uh, just need to take a couple of weeks off, yeah. enjoy summer a little bit. See if people missed us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've heard a couple of people say That's they right. missed it, so we thought we'd bring it back. There so. weren't total crickets, which is encouraging. <laughs> That's good, yeah. How was your summer? It was good. We spent a lot of time here in San Antonio, took a few trips out mm-hmm. of town, which was fun. Did you go anywhere and, particularly exciting? Uh, we went to the lake for a week yeah. w- with our family, which was uh, a relaxing time. Uh, and then we took a few days and went to Walt Disney World in nice. Orlando, wow. which was fun, but not relaxing. <laughs> I took a you book a vacation and I didn't vacation. read a page of that book. Nope. It nope. is, it's, it's work. You plan for the day, you wake up as early as you can and you stay out as late as possible Man, and then do it over again the next day. I'm the worst person to vacation with because once, once you've booked the plane ticket and determined your length of stay and booked your hotel or your accommodations, that becomes a fixed cost and you need maximum marginal utility from the vacation in order to cover the diminished utility from that fixed cost. And so I'm, I'm setting alarms for five in the yeah. morning where, I mean, I'm going to force people to have fun. On the, that the way you just described that does not sound fun. <laughs> <laughs> Note oh, to man. self, do not vacation with Jacob. Unless you want to have a lot of fun or else. <laughs> you will get your money's worth no if kidding. you vacation yeah. with Jacob. Maximum marginal utility. I love it. I work in finance. Can you tell? Yes. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, we're going to launch into probably an, a fairly long series, eight to 10 weeks, I think. We're going to be talking about um, a topic that would naturally lend itself to a five-week series, but we're just sandbagging a little bit. And we're going to talk about the five points of Calvinism. And this is kind of a, uh, when we talk about Reformed theology, this is immediately what people uh, think about and either defend or attack. And so we thought it'd be a good idea just to sit down and kind of walk through each of these uh, in as much depth as we need to and kind of plumb the depths, so to speak, and uh, get right into it. Yeah. And I think it'll be important, too, along the way to invite folks to ask their questions, uh, because obviously me and you are sitting here at a kitchen table on a Wednesday evening, and um, we're able to talk about what we'd like to talk about. Uh, and I'm sure that with a topic like this, uh, there's going to be lots of questions that come to mind. So feel free uh, to send those questions through email or uh, the number that Jacob will share towards the end of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you guys. Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about um, reform theology, it's important to understand why we want to study theology at all. Um, when I was growing up, I, I've always been kind of a wonkish person, just on any topic that I'm interested in, um, see exhibit a, where I talk about how I plan vacations. Um, so this was theology as, as a young Christian was something I was naturally drawn to. And I was kind of shocked when I was met with this resistance to the exploration of deep, of deep topics. There was, I don't need theology. I just want to love Jesus. And I don't, um, I don't need all the creeds. I just need, need Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if this is ever something that you've encountered, but I think this is probably something that the church has to push back against in some way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've definitely uh, encountered this before where folks will say, forget theology, let's just love Jesus. Mm -hmm. And as soon as someone says that, uh, they are doing theology. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
uh, because the fact of the matter is everyone has a theology. Even atheists have a theology. You can't avoid it. Uh, the minute you make a, a truth claim about God or Jesus or the Bible, um, you're making a theological statement. And uh, you could turn around and ask somebody who said, why can't I just love Jesus and get on with life? Uh, you could ask the question, why should you love him? Mm -hmm. uh, was he God? Uh, did he have a human nature? Was he sinless? Why did he die on the cross? And immediately we're launched into a theological discussion. Yeah. And so I think it's important to understand that theology is never the problem. Uh, unclarified theology or bad theology is the problem. Mm -hmm. We all have a theology. We're all theologians. The question is, are we good theologians? Yeah. So it's important to understand that, um, everyone just implicitly has their own theology. And so as Christians, it's uh, sort of incumbent on us to dig into God's word and understand what God says about himself so that our beliefs about God, theology is simply the study of God mm -hmm. so that our beliefs about God are grounded in something. In a lot of ways, it becomes the skeleton that kind of holds everything else up. At the end of the day, everything's going to point back to the gospel. But like we've been studying in our men's Bible study, the book of Galatians and Paul exhorts the Galatians and basically says, you guys are just following anything that anyone tells you without mm -hmm. any kind of firm theological skeleton. It's easy for um, our flesh to continue the analogy to kind of just be limp and, and blown about by, by anything. Yeah. And I like the way you're using skeleton too, because theology does function a lot like a skeleton for us. At Trinity Grace, though, we always want to primarily be about the gospel, mm -hmm. the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It is the thing we're going to lead with mm -hmm. as a church, uh, the primary thing that we want to talk about a lot. And a lot of times our theology can be in the background. It acts as an operating system or a skeletal system for us. And so you even see it in our name. We're Trinity Grace Church. Yeah. Um, there's not the word Presbyterian in there or reform to, uh, basically delineate us. Uh, and it's not because we're embarrassed to be Presbyterian. We're very happy and proud to be Presbyterian. And we hope folks understand our tradition and embrace it and love it. We think it's biblical. We also love reformed theology. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're proud to be a reformed church and we hope people understand and embrace, uh, the biblical idea of reformed theology. Uh, but we want to primarily be about the gospel and allow theology to be the skeleton uh, that upholds the gospel. And so our theology really supports everything uh, that we do, although you don't always see it out front. What you see is your face, your skin, your outsides, and the skeleton is really the inner architecture that holds it all in place. So at Trinity Grace, we want folks to see the gospel. Um, the things that we present and want people to get is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but everything we do does have a theological skeleton hidden underneath it. And over the next few weeks, we're going to kind of get a chance to uh, see what that skeleton looks like yep. and, uh, and, and enjoy it and uh, have discussion about it. Uh, and um, it should be fun. Yeah. And there's probably some folks who have never really looked too hard at that skeleton. And so some of the things that we're going to talk about over the next I don't know, eight to 10 weeks um, might sound really new. But one mm -hmm. of the things that's important to remember is reform theology is not any kind of new thing. It's not a it's not a fad or a trend that's come about 
in recent years, mm-hmm. there is a, um, not ancient, but there, there's a deep historical sure. milieu into which it came yep. and it's been around for a long time. Why don't you as the paid religious professional at the table, tell <laughs> us a little bit about the, the historical context in which we find reformed theology. Sure. Um, and, uh, it's an honor to be a paid religious professional. It's uh, the best job in the world. Um, I'm also a historian, uh, <laughs> uh, amateur, I guess. Um, but, uh, the idea of reform theology or the, the concept of reform theology is really historical, even in its name. Uh, the term reformed is a historical illusion. Uh, it's referencing the theology and the priorities that came out of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, uh, when the Protestant church was being birthed out of the Roman Catholic church there in the 16th century. And since the word reformed is historical in its designation, we've got to do a little history before we jump into the theology. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it'll help us understand uh, the theology even better. And so we're going to kind of give the Cliff Notes version here of this historical background. Um, But we'll start in the 16th century with a man named John Calvin. John Calvin uh, was a theologian, a pastor. Uh, He really dominated the theological landscape of Europe during his day. He was a massive intellect. At the age of 27, he wrote um, and completed uh, what we know as the Institutes of the Christian Religion, his systematic theology. Uh, Many of you likely have it sitting on your bookshelf, uh, maybe collecting dust. Uh, It could be used as a great paperweight. It's very thick. Um, And he wrote that, um, and alongside of that, he also published tons of sermons, books. Uh, He wrote commentaries on almost every book of the Bible, and um, they began to refer in that day and age to Calvin's teaching as Calvinism, uh, which he would have hated um, because in his mind he was just teaching the Bible. Uh, But he was doing it so passionately and influentially uh, that he basically... um, began to become his own brand, so to speak. Um, And um, Calvin gained lots of traction, and a lot of people bought into what he was teaching. Uh, But there were a few who were not attracted to what he was saying. Uh, They weren't drawn in. And one of these people in particular was a man named Jacob Herman. Uh, He used his Latin surname Arminius. So Jacob Arminius uh, lived... um, at the tail end of Calvin's life. And Calvinism, what Calvin was teaching, did not sit well with him. So when he was a professor at a seminary there in Europe, he systemized a theology that was in direct opposition to Calvinism. And he died in 1609. And his followers, some of his students, took his teaching and boiled it down into nice, easy-to-package form. And they wrote up five things that they didn't like about Calvinism, basically a top five list. And then in 1610, they actually presented this top five list called the Remonstrance or the Protest to the State of Holland, which was kind of a church-state nexus uh, in a sense. They were uh, one and the same. And they were hoping that the State of Holland would change its official theological statement at the time to come in line with Arminius's teaching. So eight years later, later uh, an official church council or synod was formed in the town of Dort known as the Synod of Dort, to examine these theological claims. And after 154 sessions of meeting 
And seven months later, the synod rejected the five remonstrants as being unbiblical and heretical. So basically, Arminius's teachings uh, were thrown out, and they determined that a simple rejection of these five points was not enough. It was insufficient. And so they set forth what's come to be known today as the five points of Calvinism. And this is an important point that I think people often forget or just don't know. Calvin never sat down and wrote the five points of Calvinism and said, here it is, guys. That's right. It was a reaction to Arminianism, which was a reaction to Calvinism that didn't really wasn't really called that so much, but just Calvin's teaching generally. So. Sure. And it, it happened after Calvin's death. Mm-hmm. Um, the Synod of Dort took place uh, years after he was already dead. All right. So I suppose we've teased it enough. Let's dig into these five points um, on both sides. Let's talk about sure. the five points of Arminianism and then the Reformed response. Yeah, the five remonstrants uh, that were put together by Arminius and his students uh, after his death. Uh, there's five of them, and uh, the first uh, highlights human ability. Uh, Arminius would say, although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he can't savingly believe the gospel when it's put before him. In other words, Arminius believes that mankind has the ability to believe. Uh, and we'll get into Naturally, that. Naturally. Inherently in man, he has yes. his own ability. And uh, tuck that away, because we're going to talk a lot about that That's in a big point. Uh, the next week, probably. The second point uh, that Arminius made was uh, the idea that God's election, he elected those um, to be saved, and it was prompted by his foreseeing uh, kind of uh, the future through maybe a a good way to think about it is through a tunnel. Um, He saw those that would choose him and uh, of their own accord, and he chose to save those people. Mm. Um, In other words, election is conditioned upon what man would do, what God foresaw man would do in the future. That one's a little bit circular. It is. Uh, The third uh, point that Arminius um, made is uh, that Christ came and his redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but it didn't actually secure salvation for for anyone or everyone. Mm -hmm. Christ's redemption becomes effective only if man chooses to accept it. That is an interesting point which we'll have fun talking about in a few weeks. Yeah, there's certainly some sub-questions that could be asked on that one. Sure. Um, Like, what if nobody accepted it? (laughs) Um, Christ's blood was shed in vain. Anyway, Mm. we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, The fourth point that Arminius uh, would have made is the idea that man is never so completely controlled by God that he can't reject him. In other words, God's grace can be resisted. Yeah. And then the last point that Arminius made against Calvin was that those who believed and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith. And so those are the five points of Arminianism that were put forward at the Synod of Dort. And the Synod basically uh, agreed that they were unbiblical, and they put forth the five points of Calvinism in response to these uh, remonstrances from yeah. Arminius. I think it's important, too, to zoom back a little bit and remember that these, that the remonstrance, the five points of Arminianism, were written in response to what was basically um, distrib- widely distributed Bible commentary. I mean, uh-huh. Calvin was not set, he did not set out to devise a new system of theology. He set out to 
teach the Bible. And I think he wrote commentary. Was, was sure. it on every book of the Bible? Well, every book, but I believe Revelation. Okay. Um, I wouldn't want to do a commentary on that one either. But I'm, but. I'm not 100% sure about that, but most every book he has written a commentary on. In fact, they're they're in my in my study. Yeah, um, so he was, he was set. in Scripture teaching the Bible. And I don't know, it's telling to me about the time period that the remonstrants are a refutation of that. Yes. So, so here we are with the remonstrants. We're at the Senate of Dort. They say it's no good after much deliberation. I don't know if 174 sessions was significant in terms of church synods. No. It sounds like a lot to me. I think that's just how long it took. (laughs) (laughs) So tons of discussion, um, probably heated. They reject these things and they pin the five points of Calvinism, which has this incredibly handy acronym, TULIP. TULIP. Let's dive into these. Yeah, and uh, it's important to note off the bat that because the Arminians set the terms of the debate, the language of the five points are a language of rejection. It's reactionary. So it can come across sounding unintentionally negative. Kind of dark sometimes. Yeah, but that's just the the game that was being played. And so uh, the five points of Calvinism, uh, you can understand them with a nice acrostic tulip, like you mentioned. And uh, the T stands for total depravity, which we'll talk about next week and the week after, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it basically um, says that every faculty, our intellect, our emotions, our will is affected by sin, and therefore man is dead. He's completely unable himself to savingly believe the gospel. It's, it's uh, basically a point about our fallen condition. How fallen are we? Every part of my being Every is part. affected by the fall. Yes. Not necessarily to the extent to which it could be. Yep. But every my thoughts, my actions, uh, my feelings, uh, the way that I work at work, every part of my being is affected by this. That's right. Um, the U in TULIP stands for unconditional election and basically said that God made a choice. He chose certain individuals to salvation, and it's not dependent upon any foreseen faith or virtue on their part. Uh, in fact, it's despite uh, mm-hmm. the virtue mm-hmm. that they have yeah. uh, in and of themselves. So God elected a certain number of people uh, to salvation. The L in uh, TULIP stands for limited atonement, and basically... Uh, Um, means that Christ's atoning death actually secured the salvation of those that God had elected for salvation. So he came to die for his sheep, Mm -hmm. uh, for those that God had elected before the foundation of the world. This one certainly causes some controversy. Just in the conversation that I have, this is, of all five, I mean, they're all important. They all go together. Mm -hmm. This is the one that some people really want to fight against. Sure. And I think we'll we'll hit on this in week four or five and... Um, it should be uh, an interesting discussion. And I think as you think about these things thoughtfully and biblically um, and um, and calmly, uh, it can be really encouraging. Yeah. Uh, and so that's our hope as we move through these points in the coming weeks. Um, the I in TULIP stands for irresistible grace, meaning that all those whom God has chosen for eternal life will come to faith in Him because the Holy Spirit draws them with irresistible grace. They can't refuse it. Um, and then the P in TULIP stands for perseverance of the saints. All those chosen by God to salvation will persevere to glorification. In um, other words, you can't lose you your can't salvation. lose your faith. Once a Christian, always a Christian. Yep. And it's interesting, the first and fifth points have to do with you as a person, mm-hmm. uh, your condition, and whether you can lose your salvation. 
they're about mankind. The second point, unconditional election, is really about God the Father and His role in salvation. He elects certain people uh, to salvation. The third point, limited atonement, is about God the Son and His role in salvation. He comes to save those that God elected. And then the third point, uh, or the fourth point, irresistible grace, is really about the Holy Spirit uh, and His role in salvation, how He comes uh, to apply the redemption that Jesus has secured for mm-hmm. the elect that God has chosen. Yeah, And so it's really a Trinitarian uh, display of how God works in salvation, and they are really dominoes that fall one upon the other. And so it's important to start at the beginning with uh, total depravity, try to understand it as well as we possibly can from the Bible, and then if we can get to a point where it makes sense and we buy into it, uh, unconditional election kind of falls into place. Yep. We'll see that as we move forward. Absolutely. So um, in terms of the broader Christian landscape, um, how prevalent are uh, the five points of Calvinism in um, things that we might have read or folks that we might be familiar with? I guess what I'm trying to get to is for folks that have not, uh, that this might sound like a new idea to them, mm-hmm. um, how how niche is it or how common uh, is a subscription to the, the five points of Calvinism or Reformed theology broadly? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't have the stats in front of me. I don't know if there are stats that can even be looked at. And because theology, like I mentioned, is kind of the skeletal system, mm-hmm. sometimes you will be reading folks, maybe some of your popular Christian authors that you like, and you don't know where they stand on this issue. Um, there are some popular uh, authors and pastors out there uh, that line up on the Arminian side of things. Uh, some would be John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, um, C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham mm-hmm. uh, are Arminians. Uh, on the Calvinist side, you've got people like Jonathan Edwards, Augustine uh, in church history, but uh, more um, contemporary folks like Tim Keller, John Piper, Matt Chandler, J.I. Packer mm. uh, would call themselves Reformed Calvinists. Um, and so um, you've got folks lining up on both sides. And at the end of the day, while we're talking about salvation— you can hold to an Arminian viewpoint or a Calvinistic viewpoint and still look at one another and call each other brothers and sisters right. in Christ. Yeah. There's a great story uh, I remember being recounted about uh, Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley. They were contemporaries, and uh, John Wesley, obviously an Arminian, Jonathan Edwards, a Calvinist. And I forgot who died first, but let's say it was John Wesley just for sake of the story. John Wesley died. And um, Jonathan Edwards, very sad uh, about his death. And one of Jonathan Edwards' parishioners comes uh, and hears of John Wesley's death and comes to Jonathan Edwards and says, man, John Wesley's dead. Uh, It's a good thing he's gone. He didn't agree with our theology. You know, do you think we'll see him in heaven? And Jonathan Edwards responds to his parishioner, no, I don't think we're going to see John Wesley in heaven. And his parishioner kind of like, yeah, that's right. He's not going to be there. And Jonathan Edwards stops his parishioner and says, no, you don't understand. John Wesley is going to be so close to the throne of God that from where you and I are standing, we won't get a chance to see him. (laughs) Yeah. And so just the idea of the brotherly affection that can still uh, be in place, even as folks disagree Mm -hmm. uh, on this important theological issue, I think is important to keep in mind as we move forward in the weeks to come. Absolutely. And it's also important, too, to remember that within 
reform theology broadly, uh, the five points is it's one aspect of it. There's a lot of if we were going to do a study on reform theology as a whole, it would take certainly longer than eight to 10 weeks. Um, an analogy that I heard, and it's, it's kind of simple, but I think it gets the point across. Reformed theology is a really big house and Calvinism, these five points, um, that's one room. There's yes. a lot of other uh, depths to explore. This is just one that kind of um, hits at a key issue, I suppose, and, and from time to time draws quite a bit of controversy. Yes. So we hope this series is uh, informative to you. And as always, if you have um, questions, you can um, email those into Michael at Trinity Grace SA.org, or uh, you can text them to the number that I actually don't have at the end of this podcast, but that you can find in your bulletin. Um, and we'd be g- glad to take a stab at those and, and try to help you understand what, uh, what might be a tough issue or, or just something that's on your mind. Um, Michael, do you have any other thoughts before we close out? You know, I've got a lot of thoughts, but <laughs> this is going to be a multi-week uh, series. And so I'm sure we will come back to them in weeks to come. Sure. Absolutely. Well, we'll be back next week where we'll start probably two, might stretch to three, who knows, weeks on total depravity. And, and then we'll see where we go from there. Um, but until next time, thank you for tuning in to Trinity Grace Midweek, and we'll see you later.